This morning's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 28. And I think it will become pretty apparent that Paul's first goal in writing this was not readability. So wish me luck. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who is put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I would just look at the, um, the strict order of service that we follow. It's got times in there and everything. And it looks like I have 15 to 18 minutes to preach. I'm just saying, that's not happening. I'll try. It's it's not going to happen. I also want to say at the outset that I agree with Rick. Paul did not write this passage with an eye towards readability. Now, now, Rick, Rick was especially gracious to Paul because I would put it even more harshly. Paul would have flunked an English freshman writing class, okay? It, the, those words are so convoluted and so interesting and so twisted that they make every theologian and commentator's head spin, Right? If you were a professor for an English writing course and Paul was your student, here's what I think it's likely you would have said when you got to chapter 15. Paul, where did all the eloquence of chapter 13 go, right? This epistle had this great, beautiful poem on love. And now this, Paul, can't you be a little more explicit? But you know what? If readability was uh, the primary issue, then, yeah, he'd flunk. But if durability and inspiration were the primary issue, history speaks for itself. We continue to read it. 
We continue to try to unpack it, and we get great wisdom from it. So I want to try to make the sermon as, as simple as possible. I basically want to ask two questions and attempt an answer. Question number one, how do we experience the resurrection now? The title of the sermon is Resurrection Now and Later. Second question, how do we experience the future resurrection? The resurrection of the future. Here are the three words, very simple. Salvation, second word, participation, third word, anticipation. Salvation. When I refer to salvation, my mind went immediately to Romans chapter 6, which is easier to read than 1 Corinthians 15. So I'll read a portion of it for you. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore baptized or buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. Present tense. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body that is ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Preachers and other Christians are famous for cherry-picking passages. Using particular phrases to emphasize a special point. I want to admit to you that I've used a particular phrase in chapter 6 of the book of Romans to emphasize a particular point. As a matter of fact, I say it every time I step up here for a baptism. I read this passage, and I call it a symbolism. Because over here, probably pretty soon, 
Someone is going to go into the waters of baptism, completely immersed, and they're going to come back out. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but they look a little different when they come out. Yeah? We all do. The image or the symbol is that just as Christ died as we go into the water and was raised as we come up out of the water, so we too have died to sin and self and we've been raised in newness of life to Christ. I'm not denying anything I just said, but I do want to add something to that. That idea of this passage, chapter 6, and of Paul's theology in general is good, but it's incomplete. It's good, but it's incomplete. That's because a broader perspective of baptism in the New Testament treats baptism as a component, one component of a larger experience. A a particular New Testament theologian named James Dunn put it this way. He said, the essence of the experience called the Christian experience is this, faith, repentance, water baptism, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those, he said, are the key elements of a conversion initiation. Not just the water, not just the baptism. The baptism speaks to the whole thing, but the baptism itself doesn't raise us again. When we enter the waters of baptism and confess Christ as Lord and repent of our sins, we are raised in newness of life symbolically, but we're also given the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to live this life that Paul called us to in Romans chapter 6. We now live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So live that kind of life, says Paul. Don't expect that you can sin so that grace may abound. We have died with Christ. We were buried with Christ, says Paul. And we will be raised with Christ. So if this is true, says Paul, don't be a slave to sin any longer. Instead, Let your master be the one who died for you, Jesus Christ, and serve him in the service of righteousness. We often try to uh, come up with images. They're always incomplete, aren't they? About what this reality looks like in, in real life. There was a famous preacher in England whose name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, if you look at this passage, I want to give you an image. Now imagine an English countryside. Many of these English countrysides have particular fields that are surrounded by stone walls. He said, I want you to imagine two fields 
surrounded by high stone walls. And I want you to imagine that you were born in one of those fields. And in that field, Satan is the ruler. You've got no ability to climb the wall to get out. But by the grace of God, through Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ reached down and picked you up out of the dominion, out of the field of sin, and put you into the field of Christ your Lord. Now said Martin Lloyd-Jones, there are any number of times when you're in that new field and you have a new master that you hear the call of the voice from the other field. Why wouldn't you? You were born there. Why wouldn't you? You lived there. Why wouldn't you? You were a slave there and you hear the call, but don't heed the call. It's not your master. Don't follow sin. Follow righteousness. I don't know if that image works for you, but for me, it was a beautiful image. So, How do I experience resurrection right now? I experience it through salvation. The whole gamut, including baptism, that's where I experience it. I experience the power of the resurrection in conversion. Of course, that doesn't mean I'm perfect and that I'll never hear a voice from the other field. But I've been changed. Second way I experience the resurrection in this life, I think it's played out quite well in Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Chapter 3, 10 and 11. Just a short section. Philippians chapter 3, 10 and 11 says this. Well, first of all, let me remind you what precedes it. What precedes it is Paul striving for his own righteousness. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was doing everything right. And then he gets to the point where he utters these words. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. How do we experience the resurrection in this life? Through our salvation. An image of baptism. How do we experience resurrection in this life? How about we use the word sanctification? Through participating in the life of Christ, we are sanctified. Too many times, my friends, especially in evangelical circles, we see salvation as something like this, a contract where you sign on the line below and claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior. There's value to it, but there's more. 
There's value to it because it's the beginning of a process whereby we become intimate with the Savior who loved us and died for us. That's why Paul says, I get it now. I'm not on my own. I can't achieve righteousness. And because I can't achieve righteousness, because it's been given to me by grace through faith, now all I want to do is to know the one who gave it to me. I want to know Christ. The word actually refers to the kind of intimacy between a husband and a wife. I want to know Christ that way, says Paul. How do we experience the resurrection today? Through salvation, symbolized by baptism, but also through participation with Christ. Even in his sufferings, allowing him to sanctify us and allowing him to make our hearts more and more inclined to love him more than anything else. There's another passage, I think, where Paul plays this out in the book of Ephesians. He actually is praying for the Christians. Ephesians chapter 1, and I begin with verse 15. It's always awkward when you wrote the wrong thing in your notes. It's even worse when you just didn't turn the page. There we go. Here's what he prays for the Ephesians, who, by the way, have been baptized into Christ, who have experienced salvation, and now he's praying, in effect, for their participation or their sanctification. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same. The same power, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. Paul says in Philippians, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And then he prays for the Ephesians. I want you to know the power of the resurrection. I want you to know it in such a way that you strain to know more. I want you to know it in such a way that at the end of the day, you somehow will attain to the resurrection of the dead because that's what it's all about. To know the power of his resurrection. It's not just a one-time event. It's an ongoing participation. I long for you to know that, says Paul. 
The third word concerning how we experience the resurrection in this life and particularly in the life to come, third word is anticipation. And that's where the passage in 1 Corinthians 13 comes into play. And I'm not going to read it again because it would take too long and I wouldn't do as good a job as Rick did, so I'm not going to read it. You know the essence of it. I'll just dissect it for us, having heard it read. Paul basically, he didn't say this, but we assume this. He's basically saying, some of you in this congregation don't believe in the resurrection. Now, it seems pretty clear that he's not saying, some of you don't believe in Christ's resurrection. That doesn't seem to be implied. What seems to be suggested is that there's some people there who say, yeah, Christ might have been raised from the dead, but that's got nothing to do with me. I don't believe in the resurrection from the dead in the end times at the last days. There was actually a theological tradition in the Hebrew theology for this. You had the Sadducees, which didn't think the resurrection existed. And you had the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection. I don't know to what extent those parties may have been part of this particular controversy, but for whatever reason, Paul identifies something. Some of you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. Let me tell you something. If you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, you're done. If Christ has not been raised, we are pitiful. If we just have hope in this life, we're pathetic. Because the whole thing is about the future. It certainly is about the present. But it's about the future. Christ has been raised and we will be raised with him. Anticipate it, my friends, he says. I don't want you to forget it. Sin and death are natural with Adam. But then with Christ's resurrection... The curse is reversed. Already, as we've noted in Romans and in Philippians, already we experience the power of the resurrection. But not yet. Not yet in the way we will someday. And by the way, the order is really important. Christ, Paul said, is the first fruits of those who will be raised. I mentioned it before, and um, some people were rather troubled by it. But I'll say it again. Uh, one of the places I went to school was uh, Princeton Theological Seminary, and I used to take walks. On one occasion, I heard about the fact that Jonathan Edwards was buried in a Cemetery close by. So I walked there to see it. It's really uneventful. There's nothing there. It's not a big deal. But what occurred to me then and now is that the gravestone marked where Jonathan Edwards' remains, bones and ashes, now lie. Jonathan Edwards, according to Paul, has not been raised. He awaits the resurrection. When I buried my father 12 years ago, I did the same thing I do every funeral. At the committal service, placed my hand on the casket 
and saying, sure and certain hope of the resurrection from the dead, we commend our brother to the ground, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, anticipating the final resurrection in the future. On the last day, Jonathan Edwards, my dad, and other believers who are all over the world will be raised. My friends, there's nothing in the scripture that talks about this as some sort of spiritual symbol apart from real fact. The fact is, according to the scripture, you will be raised bodily. I don't know what the new body looks like. I hope mine looks a lot better. But I know this, I will be raised. Not yet. But one day. Already. I experience a resurrection. But not yet. Completely. I uh, was reading a British author this week. Go figure, he has three letters in front of his name. I mean, who does that beside the Brits, right? C.F.D. Mool. It's like, can't you just give the guy a first and middle name? But anyway, C.F.D. Mool. I love what he said. He said, hope is faith standing on its tiptoes. Paul says, in this hope we are saved. Hope is faith. Standing on its tiptoes. Hope is faith squinting to see better. Hope is faith staring at the fog and believing because you see foggy images that there's something else on the other side. That is hope. Faith standing on tiptoes. Where are we now? Right there. Where are we when it comes to the power of the resurrection? Right here. Where are we now? Still waiting with hope. Standing on tiptoes as faith. Another thing I encountered this week that I just loved was from a New Testament scholar called Kyle Snodgrass. He said, an essential characteristic of Christianity is its tilt forward towards the future. An essential characteristic of Christianity is its tilt forward towards the future. If all we have is this life, says Paul, how pathetic is that? But we have the resurrection through the power of Christ. There are are few religions that give more hope, if you believe this one, than the Christian religion. It constantly tilts forward. It constantly looks forward. And in looking forward, it retrospectively defines the past and the present. 
So, what is our view of the present life? Let's be honest. What, what is our view? I mean, yesterday of this life, of the present life. Is it this? Or did yesterday you felt stuck in the mud? Maybe you did. Welcome to a big club. But here's the thing. Reality is not always the same thing as experience. Reality is true. We will be raised. We have experienced the power of the resurrection right here, right now. Our experience doesn't feel like it on Monday sometimes, but it's still true. We have been raised and we will be raised. And in that we hope. Faith standing on its tiptoes. I want to suggest that there are two equal and opposite errors about our view on life that are contrary to this, these passages. Uh, the first error is that we live as though this is it. We live our lives with excessive hedonism and materialism, and sometimes we focus on the body as if it's the most important thing. That's one error. It's a historical error. It's happened for millennia. Another, though equal and opposite error, is living like the body doesn't matter. You know, spiritually minded, but no earthly good. Even to the point of extreme bodily punishment. And we have a long history of that as well. Both of them, extremes, are equally wrong. The body is not evil or wicked. The body does not need to be punished. But the body is not our God. It is not the final end. And we shouldn't expect that our body right here, right now, is it. That reality right here, right now, is all we got. That the more money we make and the more material things we gather around us, satisfaction will come because it's all here right now. No, it's not. It's not. Scriptures say otherwise. So if those are two equal and opposite errors, what's the suggestion for the Christian? What, what is the suggested worldview for those of us who have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ? I, I want to give you a few possibilities. One is just being grateful for the resurrection. Can, can you look at me? Can you look me right in the eye? You have been raised by the power of God. I don't care what yesterday was. I don't care what tomorrow may feel like. The reality is, if you're a Christ follower, you have experienced the resurrection right here, right now. Hang on to it and be grateful. Maybe we should get up every day and just shout to our Lord, thank you for the resurrection. So, 
So the first thing is gratitude for the resurrection. You've got it. Second thing, praying for the resurrection. Remember what Paul prayed for in Ephesians 1? I just pray with all my might, although I'm inserting those words. I pray with all my might that you will know the power of the resurrection. That you'll be infused by the love of God. That you will understand more and more and more deeply what it means to live in Christ. I want you to know the power of the resurrection. So we should not only be grateful for the resurrection. It sounds like I'm going off the rails, but I don't mean it that way. We should be greedy about the resurrection. We should say, God, please, I need your resurrection power today. God, please, I know somebody who needs your resurrection power. They've experienced your resurrection. God, please, like Paul did for us, please help them to understand the depth of it. So how should we live in light of this reality? With gratitude. How should we live? By praying for it. How should we live by acknowledging the resurrection power when we see it? My friends, it's everywhere. I think our eyes are dim to it, but it's everywhere. What does it look like? It looks like the fruit of the Spirit. It looks like love when you don't have any love. It looks like joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Those are signposts of the resurrection. You know how I know? Because they're not natural to me. And still I have them. I didn't work on them until I got them. I was given them by the grace of God. Yeah, some people are more patient than others. I get that. But honestly, friends, you know in retrospect, when you exercised a patience, it was really beyond you, don't you? That's the power of the resurrection. Of course, it's probably most visible to me in retrospect, that fruit of the Spirit. And thank God it's that way. Because otherwise I get puffed up. Thinking about my own patience. So how do we live? We're grateful for the resurrection. We pray for the resurrection in our own personal lives. We acknowledge the resurrection power when we see it. And we anticipate the future resurrection of all things. Believing it and living it and tilting towards the future. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the promise um, that is here and now. 
and the promise that is yet to come. In the here and now, we have been raised. You've infused us with resurrection power. And when we stop, we remember signs of it. In the middle of it, sometimes we don't, but that's okay. Maybe better. We just want to say thank you. We want to be greedy and say, give us more. Help us to live in the power of that resurrection. We want to pray for others that they will experience that power. And we want to tilt forward, Lord, anticipating the day when everything will be made new and we will be raised. We trust that truth. Help us to live it this week. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.